0: Well, this morning, um, we are, we all survived uh, the end of the world, uh, right? So uh, congratulations uh, on that. Congratulations on surviving. Um, I I, want to ask you as we step into a new year, I want to ask you to dream with me a little bit. Um, And and when I say that, I want to ask you to dream and think about, all right, what does God want me to take hold of in this new year to enjoy more of him, uh, to enjoy more of his promises, to enjoy, uh, more of who he has called us to be as, uh, as his children. Uh, and so, uh, what I'm really t- talking about here is spiritual disciplines. Um, what are things, uh, what are disciplines in your life that you need to, to grow in, to mature in as a Christian? Um, and, uh, Discipline obviously is a word that we use, uh, in a lot of other areas of life. Uh, we have disciplines in sports. Uh, we have disciplines in raising children. Uh, we have to discipline our children, right? To help them to, to learn how to behave correctly. Uh, we, uh, We have discipline, the discipline of art, right? Uh, And so uh, Pastor Chris, we've been teasing him pretty hard. i got to give him a little poke this morning uh, about getting those paintings done. We're hoping that pretty soon all these blank canvases will be full of beautiful pictures that he's working on. Um, But uh, but Pastor Chris is very gifted in this. Um, But he's also, I know, he's had to discipline himself. This, this, uh, his ability to paint these pictures like this uh, is not just completely all natural. Uh, I mean, he does have some natural talent for it, but a lot of it has been a lot of time and discipline, uh, learning colors, learning uh, how to apply paint, and, and, and so that takes a lot of discipline. Uh, we, we talk about discipline in the area of academics. Um, and uh, and study and uh and so i know that uh there's some of you in in here who you know either through school or through college you've experienced the blessing of being able to discipline your mind uh in in the area of of knowledge and learning uh and so uh so so discipline applies to all these other areas of life um in fact um if you'll allow me, uh, at Christmas uh, we we were home uh, f- with our family for a week or so, and uh, kind of one of our family traditions is to go uh, bowling together with Michelle's family. And uh, I think I've probably shared before somewhat about this, but Michelle's family—they uh, are excellent bowlers. Uh, her dad, especially, is exceptional. Uh, he has bowled. Uh, three 300 games uh, and so he's got three 300 rings that that he wears from time to time uh, he's bowled uh, one, uh, one 298 game which is I think as close to perfect uh, as you can get uh, without actually being there um, and uh, and then he's got several other um, bowling games just underneath that uh, but again an exceptional exceptional bowler and uh I I joke with my wife about this a little bit because uh every Christmas, you know, and this used to really bother me actually. We we go bowling together as a family and uh and I just get the tar beat out of me. I mean I, I my wife bowls better than I do. She she whips me. Uh it's not even, it's no contest. I I just the discipline of bowling is not something that I have practiced. Uh but uh I was sitting down with uh my father in law um just kind of during the week after we had gone bowling. And, and I just asked him, I said, hey, Lane, when did you, when did you first start bowling? You know, when, when did you first start playing? He said, well, when I was about 15 years old, I went and I started bowling, and, and I really liked it. And uh, he said, but to tell you the truth, I've not really been very good that long. He said, uh, basically, really up until about when I was even 40 years old, I was a 150 average bowler. That that was all I could do. I'd just average around 150 and and not really much over that. And I said, well, what happened? How did you get to be so good? How did you get better than that? And, uh, and he said, well, he said, I decided I was going to get serious about it. And I bought a book. And it was by a guy named Earl Anthony. Uh, anybody know who Earl Anthony is? Some of you guys are shaking your head. But apparently he was a really good bowler. I, don't, I didn't know who he was. Um, but he wrote this book called "Winning Winning Bowling." And out of curiosity, I went on Amazon. You know, t- 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 you know, Earl Anthony typed it in, and I wanted to see what would pull up. And I've actually found the book. The book is out there still uh, in circulation. But uh, it's called "Winning Bowling," and uh, and he said after reading that book, almost overnight, my bowling average jumped to one seventy five. Uh, just from reading that and, and just, just applying, uh, those, those, uh, the skills that are talked about in that book. Um, and he said, the other thing that's really helped my bowling score is he said, I got a new ball. Uh, and the ball is a, he said, whenever I got a urethane ball, some of you probably know what that means. Uh, but I got a urethane ball, my average jumped to 195 and I was like, wow. Okay. So that's pretty good. And I said, what's your average now? And he says, Well, my average right now is about two fifteen to two twenty. So so he's I mean, really an exceptional, exceptional bowler. And I said, Well, how did you, you know, how you get get better? How are you getting better? And he says, Well, I'm just I'm disciplining myself. He says, I practice over and over again, you know, how I throw the ball, how I release the ball, all those things. He says, I'm just trying to get better. At doing those things uh, and and just disciplining my 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 body and my bowling game so that so that I'm playing good bowling. Uh, so anyway, uh, I share all of that. Uh, just again, discipline. It, it applies in a lot of areas of life. And so when I start talking about discipline, it applies in the spiritual life as well. Um, now here's where I want to be careful, okay? Because I know some of you are probably like like me. Uh, at one point in my life. I used to believe that by doing certain righteous acts or certain good things, and through disciplining my life and modifying my behavior, I could somehow make myself righteous before God. That I could do certain things, right things, good things, and God would somehow look down on me and say, That guy, he's got it. I'm impressed. I'm impressed. And uh, that's just foolishness. And that is not the message of the gospel. Uh, That is not the message I want you to hear this morning uh, because it's not true. Um, We're not working on a new self-help program here for 2013 called How to Impress God and Influence People. (laughs) The, The Bible is very clear on this point. When we talk about the gospel, we're talking about God doing something for us that we can't do for ourselves plain and simple. Uh, I'm going to really hit this hard because I want Jesus to be lifted up as Savior this morning. And so we're going to hit some passages of scripture that just remind us of what the heart of the gospel is and how we are righteous or made righteous before God. Romans 5, 1 through 2. And I'm going to breeze through some of these pretty fast. Uh, It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope, in hope of the glory of God. You hear that? We've obtained access by faith. ...into this grace in which we stand. Where, how do we stand? How do we stand before God? Because of what Jesus has done. It continues in verses 6 through 9. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who's the ungodly? It's me and you. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Again, me and you, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. I was studying on this and, and I was reading uh, a little further in the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews kind of reflects a little bit on the Old Testament and the Old Testament sacrificial system. And it, it talks about uh, the reality of how the Old the Old Testament sacrificial system was these high priests; they would kill animals to make atonement for the sins of the people, and they had to do it over and over again. Because the reality of it was, is that the sacrifice of the animals really didn't do anything for their sin; it didn't make their sin go away. That offering was not enough. Uh, and it talks about it kind of in relation to the gospel. Uh, Hebrews uh, uh, chapter ten, uh, verse seven says. Uh, I'm going to skip down a little bit. You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. And I think this is the voice of Jesus coming in. I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, the Old Testament sacrificial system, in order to establish the second. And by that will we have... For by a single offering, he has prepared for all time those who are being sanctified. I love that imagery there because it gives this imagery of the priests. And they keep, keep offering more and more sacrifices. More and more sacrifices. People sin again. More sacrifices. More sacrifices. Jesus offers himself. And guess what he goes and does? He sits down. It's done. Finished. Oh, there goes that. Hope I don't need that anymore. Yeah, I don't need that one. Okay. <laughs> uh, going on in verse 17, uh, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Is faithful. I love this little statement up there. Uh, It says there is no longer any offering for sin. There's nothing to be done. There's no offering to be made. It has already been done. Jesus did it. Enough said. Done. Finished. I love that. See how our mighty Savior has crushed sin with his mighty, with the mightiest blow possible. So violent and well aimed is the cross of Christ toward our enemy of sin that there is nothing else to be done, only to believe, only to receive his wonderful and awesome work of salvation. So if this morning the question in your heart is on this matter of reconciliation with God, adding disciplines to your life, trying to be a better person, not going to help you. you're sitting here this morning knowing the weight of your sin and the blackness of your heart separates you from a holy God, the answer is not a small act of righteousness to attempt to cool God's wrath. All our acts of righteousness would only be a drop of water against the holy wrath of God toward our sin. I picture in my mind, I have this image in my mind. um, It's very vivid. Uh, I grew up ...for several years in northern Minnesota. And we would go out in the snow in the winter and play all day long. We'd come in sopping wet, snow and ice hanging off of us. And, uh, and I remember we'd, we'd take off our, our snow clothes and we would hang them up around the furnace uh, in our house. And I remember I would always do this. I loved to do this. I'd take a piece of ice or a piece of snow that was clinging to one of my pieces of clothes... ...and I would just toss it on the furnace... And as soon as I tossed it on the furnace, I'd watch it, and it would just sizzle. And it would just evaporate. And it was gone. And that picture in my mind, I think, is a great picture of us trying to take a little act of righteousness, a little act of goodness that maybe we've done, and saying, all right, here you go, God. This little appease your wrath against my sin. Psss. It's nothing. Our righteous acts can't atone for what we've done. There's only one act of righteousness that can save you and me. It's not something that you and I can do. It's something that's been done. It is the righteous work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Receive His salvation this morning. Believe, embrace, be saved. My first aim this morning would be that you would be rescued as I have been through the mighty salvation and the mighty work of Jesus. That's where your hope needs to rest. That's where you need to run. My second aim this morning, and I, I'm really deliberate about the wording here, is inside of salvation, we believe in the firm grip of love and grace. There are promises to take hold of. There are promises that God is holding out to us. When God opens our eyes and His saving uh, opens our eyes to His saving grace, He simultaneously awakens our hearts to new possibilities and realities. The Word of God calls us upward towards peaks that can be summited, indestructible prizes to be taken hold of, and higher joys to be experienced. God holds those things out to us. Not to gain righteousness, not to gain or impress God, but God in His goodness and His grace, as He calls us His children, I think God holds out His hand and He says, Hey, I've got something else for you. Come and get it. Come and get it. And God's not like a big brother, you know. Some of you had big brothers like this. I did too. He holds it out and He says, Come get it. Whoa, can't get it now. Try to get it. Here you go. Oh. No, God's not like that. God wants us to take hold of those promises, and he holds them out for us to take hold of them. That's spiritual disciplines. That's what I'm talking about this morning. That's my second aim is to encourage you in 2013 to reach out and to take hold of some of the promises that God has for you. Philippians 3, 7 through 16, uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, this is what he says. that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect. Here it comes, listen, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Father, as we uh, enter into a new year, uh, I pray that you would inspire us to take hold of the promises that you're holding out to us. And, uh, God, that you would challenge us and encourage us there uh, to reach out and, uh, and to grab hold of these great promises. Um, Lord, we love you, and I thank you, uh, God, for your goodness to us and uh, your willingness to love us. Lord, we, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to continue on here. Sorry, I kind of I was afraid that I might give the impression I was done. I'm not done. <laughs> so buckle your seatbelts. Uh, I went along with the other services too, so you are getting no special treatment here. I'm going to make you bear with me through this. Uh, <laughs> In the words of the Apostle Paul, we hear a man who is resting firmly in the finished work of the Savior, yet pressing forward to know more of Christ. Uh, Jeremiah 29, 13 calls our hearts heavenward. It says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Do you hear that? When you seek me with all your heart. What's it mean to seek with all your heart? You ever gone after something like that? I think it rings with what Paul was saying. I press on. I'm straining forward. It's talking about discipline, isn't it? Spiritual discipline. The whole of Scripture, I think, encourages us and even baits us towards maturity. This summer, um, we, uh, uh, when we went to our rite of passage retreat with our students out to uh, Journey Quest. Uh, I asked the students to study some autobiographies of great Christians. And and I don't know about you, but for me, uh, some of the stories from great Christians from history are some of the most effective and most inspiring things to me in my spiritual life. Because I I look at these people and I'm I'm, I'm inspired by their zeal and their love for the Lord and the sacrifices that they've made uh, to take the gospel to the nations. And uh, John G. Patton is one of these biographies that I think will stay with me for a long time. And uh, if you'll allow me, I want to just share with you uh, a little bit of his story. Uh, John Patton was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands, a chain of islands west-northwest of Australia. These islands were inhabited by natives that were enslaved to a savage lifestyle of demonic oppression. And and I say that um, because... They would speak of in their culture of evil spirits that would torment them, and they felt this need to try to appease these evil spirits. Um, And they would do that through war, human sacrifice, even cannibalism. This was a part of their everyday life uh, of these people. Uh, The first missionaries to bravely step into this savage world, uh, they think, uh, were John Williams and James Harris in the year of 1839. And the story goes that only minutes after these guys went ashore uh, to uh, to, these islands, to this island, to this island, these men were clubbed to death and, and killed uh, and and eaten by the cannibals. Uh, and uh, the ship that actually kind of sent the rowboat out with them on it, they actually witnessed this uh, from the ship. Um, other missionaries, though, would continue to press into these islands, and that always inspires me. That. They were not deterred. I mean, that was like, all right, we'll send some more. (laughs) We're going to tell you about Jesus. Uh, You can kill us if you want, but we're going to keep coming. Um, John Patton was one of these brave missionaries. His first four years would be spent on the island of Tana in some of the most horrible conditions imaginable. And, And I share this, some of this just terrible stuff with you just wanting you to see his faith. I want you to see there was a resolve here and a trust in God that was just unquenchable. Um, and uh, so he and his wife Mary would arrive on the island of Tana in November of 1858. Uh, Mary was several months pregnant at this time, uh, and so that always just blows my mind too. Here's this young pregnant wife going with her husband. Uh, hey, let's go tell the cannibals about Jesus. I'm in. I'm all in. Let's go. I love you, and, and I love Jesus, and I want these people to know Jesus. Um, and so they, there they go. Um, four months later, um, Mary would deliver their baby boy, and um, one of the things that Mary and John uh, Patton would struggle with uh, would be uh, just kind of this fever, uh, some kind of basically horrible illness it would cause diarrhea pneumonia uh, delirium uh, just a bad a bad deal they would constantly kind of have these bouts of it and uh, immediately after mary delivered uh, their their baby boy peter uh, she would have one of these bouts and it would take her life Um, and uh, so she would die and um, just shortly after being there uh, they hadn't been there very long and and so john would bury his wife Within a couple weeks more, uh, John Patton would bury his son, his newborn son, Peter, as well. Um, and uh, he writes this, and, and I, I share this again because I want you to understand this guy was a real, a real guy. And he made, he made real sacrifices um, to, to share uh, the love of Christ with these people. Uh, he says this. He says, Let those who have ever passed through any similar darkness as of midnight feel for me. As for all others, it would be more than vain to try to paint my sorrows. Um, he would continue to persevere for four more years on the island of Tanna. Again, enduring the fever that took took his wife's life, Uh, he would endure that. uh, Angry natives, and not to mention uh, the grief that he had experienced from the loss of his wife and his child. Uh, One account from his autobiography shares a little bit of his time on Tanna. And this is kind of, this was pretty, actually pretty normal everyday life for him there. says, my enemies seldom slackened their hateful designs against my life, however calmed or baffled for the moment. A wild chief followed me around for four hours with his loaded musket. And though often directed towards me, God restrained his hand. I spoke kindly to him and tended to my work as if he had not been there. Fully persuaded that my God had placed me there and would protect me till my allotted task was finished, looking up in unceasing prayer to our Lord, our dear Lord Jesus, I left all in His hands and felt immortal till my work was done. Trials and hairbreadth escaped strengthened my faith and seemed only to nerve me more to follow. And they did not tread. And they did tread swiftly upon each other's heels. Um, so he just perseveres uh, in this very tough environment, uh, really seeing very little fruit. He actually had one convert, uh, one of the natives named he, – he named the native Abraham after he became a Christian. Uh, was really the only convert that he saw while he was on Tana. Uh, eventually, the hostilities against him on Tana would become so violent that he would be forced to leave the island. Uh, at first glance, this would seem uh, to me uh, to be a tremendous defeat for the gospel and for John Patton uh you know it just seems like man so very little fruit and your wife your child they died you buried them there and you have to leave uh man that seems like a horrible defeat um his reflection though on his work in tana um, is really helpful in understanding the sovereignty and the will of god um through this uh He would later, uh, just kind of during his his time at home, he would write about um, his time on the island of Tana. In his writings and also his public speaking as he would go around to churches and share, God used it in a really mighty way. And it actually created this massive missions movement of young men and young women who said, we're going to the New Hebrides Islands, and we're going to tell the people about Jesus. And this massive missions movement was started. And this is what John uh, John uh, later wrote about, about this. He says, Oftentimes, while passing through the perils and defeats of my first four years in the mission field on Tana, I wondered why God permitted such things. But on looking back now, I already clearly perceive, clearly perceive that the Lord was thereby preparing me for doing and providing me materials wherewith to accomplish the best work of my life, namely the kindling of the heart of Australian Presbyterianism with a living affection for these islanders of their own southern seas, and in being the instrument under God of sending out missionary after missionary to the New Hebrides to claim another island and still another for Jesus that work and all that may spring from it in time and eternity never could have been accomplished by me, but for the first sufferings. And then the story of my Tana enterprise, um, he'd spend the next four years, uh, not living in defeat, uh, back home, uh, but continuing, uh, to mobilize more and more missionaries to go to the new Hebrides islands. Uh, he would marry again in 1864 and in 1866, he And uh, his new bride would head to the island of Aniwa, again, another one of the islands in the New Hebrides chain. Again, the spiritual darkness of these cannibals was shocking. Uh, But he and his wife, Margaret, uh, would labor. And over the next 15 years, they would see the entire island of Aniwa turn to Christ. Uh, Incredible, incredible. Uh, God just totally transformed the culture, totally transformed the people. Uh, He would later write... I claimed Aniwa for Jesus, and by the grace of God, Aniwa now worships at the Savior's feet. I love that wording. Now Aniwa worships at the Savior's feet. Um, And I know some of you are asking, all right, wow, that was quite a rabbit trail. I'm not sure where you're going with that as far as spiritual disciplines for 2013. Are you telling us all to pack our bags and sail to some cannibalistic island somewhere? Uh, No, no, not at all, not at all. Um, uh, What I want you to hear in this, is that a lot of us probably look at the conversion of the island of Nineveh and say, that's the turning point in history. That's when everything changed. That's when God moved. Um, but I almost wonder sometimes if the real history changing things, the real turning points, are a lot more obscure. They maybe happen in a corner somewhere where nobody sees, nobody knows, nobody hears. And that's where spiritual disciplines come in. Would you believe that the turning point in history for the New Hebrides Islands, for the island of Aniwa, began with a 17-year-old Christian young man who came home one day with an idea that his family should have a daily time of prayer together. And I'm not talking about John Patton. I'm talking about his father, James. Years, years before, before John Patton was even a gleam in his father's eyes, As a 17-year-old man, young man, he'd just recently become a Christian. He came home, James came home to his parents. He said, Mom, Dad, we need to start having family prayer times together. His mom and dad's like, cool, yeah, let's do that. As this 17-year-old man, young man, would grow up, the discipline of prayer would blossom in his life. This habit of family prayer would be something that would grow and follow him. And by the time he married and had his own children, it would blossom into a discipline that would sow the seeds of the gospel into the lives of his children. This is by no means an exaggeration. John Patton's own words testify to this. He would later write about his father's prayer times. Uh, apparently there was a small room in their home where their father would go for prayer as a rule after each meal. The eleven children knew knew it and they reverenced the spot and they learned something profound about God. The impact on John Patton was immense. John John Patton writes this. He says, Though everything else in religion were by some unthinkable catastrophe to be swept out of memory, were blotted from my understanding, my soul would wander back to those early scenes and shut itself up once again in that sanctuary closet. And hearing still the echoes of those cries to God would hurl back all doubt with the victorious appeal. He walked with God. Why may not I? How much of my father's prayers at this time impressed me? I can never explain. Nor could any stranger understand went on his knees, and all of us kneeling around him in family worship, he poured out his whole soul with tears for the conversion of the heathen world to the service of Jesus. And for every personal and domestic need, we all felt as if in the presence of the living Savior and learned to know and love him as our divine friend. His father's prayer life, it started when he was 17 years old as a young man, and that discipline grew into this beautiful thing that would steady and would even, I believe, launch and fuel the message of the gospel to the, to the New Hebrides Islands. I love this example because I'm, I'm, I work a lot with our youth here at Lincoln. Uh, and, and so I love this example because it's about a 17-year-old young man. We've got some 17-year-old young men in our youth ministry. And I think about them when I think about this. And I think about, man, what what discipline can they start now as a young Christian? And what is God going to do with it? I can only dream. And that's why I ask you this morning. I challenge you this morning. Dream. Dream with me. What discipline do you need to add to your spiritual life in the new year? What promises do you need to reach out and grab hold of to grow and to enjoy more of God this year? A new year is just ahead. There's new territory and new promises to be taken hold of by faith. Let's press on, church family. Let's move forward together. Let's take hold of some of those promises together.